You're listening to Friends with Everyone, the podcast about breaking down barriers and changing perceptions one interview at a time. I'm your host, Sherry Kuiper. Hey, friends. I am really excited about today's topic because it's a heavy topic. It's a much needed topic. And frankly, it's a topic that we're barely going to scratch the surface of today. But I'm talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I know in the media, you see so many different things from we need to talk about it more to we need to not talk about it all because it's divisive. I'm very excited to interview my friend, uh, Linnea Hiesel, who's literally made it her business to educate others, to help others be more intentional with diversity, equity, and inclusion in their businesses, organizations. And today we're going to be talking about how we can also do that in our own personal lives as well. So sit back and go on this journey with me as we talk about this very important topic. But the first thing I want to ask you is about your business, because you started a business focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I feel like those are three big kind of buzzwords right now. Why is there still a need for this in 2022? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think some of it, I don't know, maybe consider it part of the great resignation. I'm, de- I'm definitely one of um, those folks. And um, I really, the, the pivotal moment was after the murder of George Floyd. And I'd already made the decision that I was leaving my full-time position at Georgetown University, um, where I oversaw um, the veterans office there. So supporting military connected students. And I was planning on going to school full-time as a PhD student um, at George Mason. And then the murder of George Floyd happened and everything stopped for me where I recognized there was something different. And even though there had been a number of countless murders at you know, the hands of police brutality or um, just questionable um, judicial processes when, it, when race was involved in, in the conversation or the situation, something was different this time. And I recognized in the countless emails that we got from organizations saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, we're all about anti-racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. But in a lot of cases, the words were hollow. It was, we are diverse, we're equitable, we're inclusive, but what they were doing internally as an organization didn't necessarily align with the words, but yet there was an intentionality that folks really wanted to be diverse, equitable, and inclusive. And so I recognize this as my opportunity to bridge that gap. And so um, so NaceQuest, um, I started the consulting company really to serve as going beyond those one and done training seminars. That's a great check in the box. Um, Yeah, you can pat yourself on the back if your company is doing that, but how are you systemically trying to make your organization DE&I? And so that's where I come in and use sociology research to really observe, interview folks, identify what an organization is actually doing versus what they're saying and help align them. And so um, that is really where the need is coming from. I think folks really recognize, and I think it's gone beyond just being, you know, the cool hip word of being DEI. 
folks are really because they were forced to recognize it in COVID and after the murder of George Floyd of being like, oh, now I get it. I don't know where to start with this, but I want to. And I am hoping that I can help those folks be able to take actionable and meaningful steps to go beyond saying the right thing and actually doing the right thing. And I also, and DE&I is not just about race, right? Cause I feel like I'm even a little guilty of this too. Cause like when I hear it, race is the first thing I think about but it's not just race. Can you just talk a little bit about all the things that it includes? And I yeah. know it's a lot, so maybe that's a really big question. That is a really good question. So it actually, um, I and this is how I kind of fell into it. So as I had mentioned, um, I oversaw the veterans office at Georgetown and it was during my time there that I recognized intersectionality. And so that's another buzzword that a lot of folks get wrong. Um, where people think of intersectionality is essentially the identity Olympics, where if you are black and you're a woman and you have a disability, you're more disadvantaged than somebody else. And that's not what intersectionality is about. So during my time at Georgetown, I recognized that the needs of military connected students who were, you know, white and male may be a bit different than a military connected student who identified as LGBT or um, a woman veteran or a veteran of color. And so what intersectionality means, yes, they were all military connected, but because their identities intersected with other identities such as race, gender, um, socioeconomic status, disabilities, the approach in terms of what services look like may be different. And so that's really what, um, when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion is how are we finding ways to make our community inclusive and equitable in ways that my experience, at, and I identify as a biracial woman, cis woman, um, straight, but, I'm, I, I have a place of belonging as well as somebody else who has different identities and how do they have a sense of belonging as well. Um, and so really it comes down to just recognizing that we all have different identities, we all have different experiences and how can we be respectful and supportive and celebratory in the ways that we can be to do meaningful work or to be a community, whatever the case might be. And you kind of touched on this a little bit um, a few minutes ago, but it seems to me, and, and maybe, I mean, I feel like for you, it was George Floyd. We've had the, this concept around for a long time. I mean, what comes to mind, and I'm not saying they're the same, but the concept is very similar. It makes me think of like affirmative action, right? And so we've had that for years and that was not cool. Like I remember growing up hearing about affirmative action. And it was that somebody was going to get a job just because they were X, Y, or Z. I've come to realize that wasn't exactly the case because, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about this a little bit in a, in a little bit more, but it's more about just opening up the opportunity to a qualified person who's X, Y, or Z. How is, how is this how is this new attention on, because I feel like everybody's picking up diversity, equity, inclusion. Like you said, it's trendy. It's the buzz thing. It's what everybody's doing. Why is it sticking now 
and it wasn't sticking then because I don't think much in society has truly changed or is our voices finally getting loud enough that it's sticking? What, what is your perspective of that? I think it might be two, two angles in terms of why this is a little bit different. Um, first off, I think just overall, when it comes to D, E, and I topics, initiatives, um, there, and this is, I, I fault academics a little bit. We do this a lot where we think we, we make terminologies and theories and things like that way more complicated <laughs> than what it needs to be. And so, or what ends up happening is, is like, one person has a definition of what D and I is, and then somebody else has a different definition and then it becomes confusing. And it's like, okay, well then what is it? And so right. that's, that's a challenge one. And I think things have gotten more streamlined to better understand what we're talking about. <laughs> we still got a lot of work to go. And I know we're going to talk about CRT later, but like, that's another example of like everything, everything diff confusing. <laughs> um, but then the other component, I think some of it is, is DE&I topics, conversations, engagement requires a place of empathy. It requires you, even though I may not have experienced, you know, some form of prejudice or, I mean, I have, but like compared to someone else, I... I feel like more people are in a place of being empathetic to recognize that that is still possible mm -hmm. and how do we do something to change it? Um, so I often tell this story. Um, I think I even wrote about it. It might be on my website for one of the blogs, but when I was in middle school, um, so I was a trained classical opera singer, um, my background. And, um, but when I was in middle school, I was competitively singing all over the country and so forth. And um, my middle school was doing auditions for the show Grease. And um, it was eighth grade and um, I auditioned and I didn't even make the chorus. And- That's weird. Yep, exactly, a little weird. <laughs> so my parents were both teachers very hands-off, like Linnea, you will advocate for yourself. You know, we're not going to go in and, you know, rustle feathers and whatnot, but this was one of the few times my parents intervened and they suspected something. And I did, I was naive, young, dumb. I grew up in a predominantly yeah. white, um, uh, county. Um, I was one of few people of color in, in, the, in the school. And, um, my parents asked for a meeting with the music teacher and the vice principal was there and fast forward to the end of the conversation, the teacher said, well, in the movie, there's no one who looks like her. So oh I had gosh. no place to, um, to cast her. And my parents, it was, you know, long story. My parents decided I was going to go to another school district. They weren't having it. And wow, that, they pulled you out of school over that. Um, I mean, it was my eighth grade year. Um, okay. And then I decided gotcha. in auditions to go to a magnet high school and went that track. And it was, it worked out fine in the end. Um, but now that I'm much older and I look back on it and I recognize one, my parents intervening and recognizing something was off from a racial perspective. I mean, they gave benefit of the doubt. Maybe I had a bad audition day, maybe, you know, whatever the case might be, but they, they but it was pretty unlikely. Yeah. Pretty unlikely. <laughs> But when I think back on it and I wonder, well, where did this music teacher get this concept from? Right. 
And when you go back and you look at the time frame that Greece was portrayed in, mm-hmm. and you look at what it was, you know, a high school in California at the time, yeah. and you do the history lesson of what that is, well, yeah, there weren't black kids that went to that particular high school because they were being bused somewhere else. If you think right. about Vice President Kamala Harris, that's the exact experience that she yeah. was facing where she was being bused to go to another school for equality measures. And so um, it really comes down to when we think about what is equality or accessibility, yeah, affirmative action is a great way to say, yes, we need to make sure that individuals have access to pipelines because we as a country have disadvantaged them for a number of centuries. We gotta create some ways, but accessibility doesn't necessarily mean admittance and funding, right? It, if you're going to access or allow access to these spaces where there is no support or inclusion or microaggressions, things like that, then all of that other stuff doesn't matter because then the, the inequality is still happening. You're just now forcing it upon all individuals in that process. And so I think that's what folks are recognizing a little Mm -hmm. bit like, yes, we do have, you know, a vice president who is a woman of color. We've had a president who um, happened to be biracial and was a person of color. Yes, those are exceptional things that we should be celebrating. Mm -hmm. But if we're recognizing that not everybody has that pipeline and the Mm -hmm. types of experiences they had, even though they were qualified, um, then we have a larger conversation in terms of, well, then why was that the exception and not the norm? Right. So right. I think that's what we're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think too, oh, what I find interesting, and I even think back, like, I think you and I are very close to the same age. I'm not going to do us a disservice and announce that, but <laughs> I'll joking aside. But I mean, I I grew up in a time, I grew up in the information age, right? So I'm like one of the first generations to experience internet, social media, all that stuff. And I tell me what you think about this. And I do talk a lot about social media because I know a lot of people like to hate it, but at the same time, you know, it exposes you to so much more, right? And we've got 24 hour news cycles and all that good stuff now. And I can't help but think that that also plays a role into what, why this is sticking more now versus, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Cause like, you know, my daughter who, you know, is 20 years old, she'll come out and talk to me. I'm like, she'll be like, ask me about the war in Ukraine. It's like, how, why are you even paying attention to that? Like they're paying attention. And so I think younger generations are just more in tune with it. And now we've got the millennials who are kind of like the up and comers, I guess you could say. And they're just like, yeah, we're not putting up with this crap anymore. And I just was curious what your thoughts were on that. If if that information age really has helped support things like this sticking around a little bit more. I think the information age for folks that are interested in diverse perspectives, yes. I think it's very easy for social media, heck, even the media itself, for you know, essentially creating your own echo chambers. I think Absolutely. you and I 
are definitely eager of I want diverse perspectives. So I'm going to sign up for everything and, you know, take it all in and, you know, I'll make my own critical choices. And I think that there is among the younger generation where that is the case. I mean, I, even though my kids are not old enough where they'll be having these classes, but I know within our county, eventually they'll have classes in terms of how to determine what is fake news mm. and, you know, be able to assess um, like news sites and things of that. Yes. Kind. Oh my gosh. Thank God. I'm so glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. I, there's a lot where I was just like, oh, I cannot wait until my kids uh, get older so we can have conversations about that. But so I think some of it is that I will also note that the younger generation as a whole is more diverse in mm -hmm. nature. And I also think that they're not shy to have conversations that I think in our generation no. was taboo. Right. So I think that that's also um, at play as well. And maybe that is because social media creates more platforms where that yeah. there's more exposure, but... Yeah, there is. But I will say this for anybody listening, um, watch the Netflix documentary Social Dilemma if you've not watched it yet, because you're 100% right. I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, you can go. You can find mass amounts of diversity. I have so many. So like, OK, it's not TikTok, Reels, whatever. I'm of an age where I don't care what it's called, but I see some really cool stuff ends up on my page. Um, everything from Native American dancers to uh, black innovators, to this guy named Goth Dad. Don't know how I got Goth Dad, uh, who's a firefighter, um, on my page, but I did, and it's so awesome. But Social Dilemma does a really good job of explaining how you can create your own echo chamber and how social media is designed to tell you what you want. I don't know what I did to get the, the I, I guess I'm doing something okay because I get a lot of, of interesting things on, on my feeds. But just to be very mindful of that, you have to search outside what you know to find that stuff. And, and I'm so excited as a former journalist to hear that your kids are going to be learning about fake news. Fake news is not new. It has existed forever. It was called yellow journalism back in the day. Wars were started over this stuff. And there is a, a method to the way you should critically think and watch news. Same goes with social media. So I'm just on a personal level, very excited to hear that because I preach that all the time and nobody understands what I'm talking about. So, all right, I want to dive into some discussion now about some things. So we've talked a lot about what diversity, equity, and inclusion is. And I think that these next set of topics really kind of break into why all of that is really important. So the first one's kind of a big one and I'm just going to jump right into it and it's critical race theory. And it's been making a lot of headlines in the news. A lot of people don't want to teach it. And I'm going to tell you what I think about it and then educate me. So I think critical race theory is kind of like that systemic look of how um, our systems that have existed for hundreds of years have held people down, okay, um, and have raised others. And, you know, I look at a country where we're not mostly white. But yet, everywhere you go, it's the white people in power, right? So to me, that's kind of like what critical race theory is. I'm sure there's a very good scientific explanation for it, but it's, it's kind of that, that system that hold, holds certain people down. And I think people don't like it and because they're saying, oh, you're just creating 
division, I don't think it's creating division. I think it's making us aware of the crap that's been going on and that the only way that I can stop it as Sherry is to understand what it is and what's going on. So like, I feel like they don't, if we don't study critical race theory, we get to keep the blinders on and nothing changes and it, the system kind of keeps holding it down. So that's what I think critical race theory is. You, you correct me, you educate me. Let's go. All right. I got my book. I'm ready to go. <laughs> you do. You've got like notes and paper clips and everything. Yeah, a lot. Um, so I'm a, so I'm a sociologist and, um, we, uh, we actually, well, we use a, a, a portion or a type of critical race theory and, um, but it really started in the legal arena. So, um, lawyers, um, specifically, I think it was Derek Bell who, um, essentially came up with the concept of critical race theory where it's legal scholarship, where you're critically applying the law. So you're looking at legal cases or legal decisions and how the framework of that, that law that is being you know, essentially um, debated, how that law conflicts or is oppressing somebody because of their race. Okay. So it is more of that systemic level. We're thinking like high level redlining. Think of redlining, mm -hmm. the busing systems. That's another example or um, crime in terms of like, what are the different types of crimes um, that would be punishable to X amount of time in jail versus going to prison? And, you know, is that being done in a fair way. And so that is really what critical race theory is about and definitely is not being taught in school because mm -hmm. I even have a hard time. Like, I don't know law, like that's not my thing. <laughs> so yeah, from a sociologist perspective, what that means is looking at, for us critical, like looking at theories of sociology from a critical lens in terms of how, so sociologists, we know Weber, Marx, and Durkheim, those are the big three mm -hmm. in sociology. And how did those three theorists that came up with the big three of sociology theory, okay, great, they were all white men, and they did, you know, a lot of studies that were technically about other white men, right. um, how did that exclude, or how did that overlook women um, they, they're all about class. So socioeconomics, we don't have to worry about that, but race, things of that nature, how do those theories overlook? So I'm going to apply that theory today, but be conscious in terms of how is somebody's race impacted by, um, Marxism or, you know, um, there's other ones, um, that mm -hmm. are out there in terms of like, functionalism, whatever the case might be. So that's really what critical race theory is about from a, a studying of the world perspective. But what people conflate CRT with, because this is not what CRT is. So it's not about having conversations about diversity. It's not about having um, diversity, equality, equity, inclusion initiatives. No, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. It's that's not about, things. yeah, exactly. It's not about multiculturalism. Um, and it's definitely not about reverse racism. It's more about being conscious 
of race, or you can apply it from feminist theories, you know, gender, whatever the case might be. And so really that is what CRT is, is a more of an application in terms of, oh, okay. So if I'm going to be hiring somebody or the hiring process at my organization, what organizations am I recruiting from? Mm -hmm. And is that a diverse approach or am I excluding qualified candidates because I refuse to work with X, Y, and Z schools? Mm -hmm. That is a way of thinking from a CRT lens, but it's not necessarily like you're applying CRT. It's more of how am I thinking critically in the ways that I'm making my organization or my life, my world, my, my company more diverse and inclusive. So that's really what CRT is. And I think that's where people get conflated a little bit. Um, because when we think about it from a theory, we're talking high up in the sky, right. macro level kind of thing. What I think where a lot of the pushback is, is people don't want to talk about diversity. Right. That's, that's the difference. Right. And it's hard too. thinking about diversity is hard as, as a white person. It's, it's hard for, it's not, it's not hard for me. Like I, how do I phrase this? It's easy to be lazy when it comes to diversity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's easy to say, well, I can't find this or I can't find that because it's hard as a human to look within yourself and like really force yourself out there. I I have a very close friend of mine who kind of explained uh, as a, as a black woman, she says, I'm exhausted of helping white people figure this stuff out. So I think as white people, we get to be very lazy and be like, oh, well, there's just, it's not around and I'm just going to go this way because it's easier. And I think, I feel like the people who are against CRT just want to continue being lazy is kind of how I feel about it. And I just, I don't know why it's so hard. I don't think it's so hard, but well, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't act like I'm, I'm ahead of the game because I'm not, it is it is hard, but I don't see why, why as a white person, we should be afraid of, of doing that work. Like to me, it's, it's hard because yeah, I'm a white person and my community, a lot of it is, is very white. I have to work to go find the diversity. And I find it, I just find it kind of appalling in a lot of ways that people are using CRT as a way they're like saying it's divisive. I'm like, but, but you're being divisive by saying it's device. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, I think some of it is, it is a letter, a level of ease. So that Mm -hmm. comfortability of it in terms of, well, if I've always always been doing it this way, why should I change my ways? You know, clearly it's worked for me, so it should work for everybody else. But that's also that example of not everybody's experiences are the same. Mm -hmm. I think the other component of why there's so much pushback. And this is another term that gets thrown out a lot is like white fragility. Um, Great book. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, And I think some of it is, is this fear of why should I go through a process where I'm going to be intentionally made to feel guilty for either my ancestors' sins or, you know, even for my own, you know, for being part of a system. And I often like when I have these, when I lead a session in terms of DE&I, I, I'm first to admit, like I've 
guilty of it too. And I'm a person of color, you know, like <laughs> it, we're not all, you know, right. spared from, you know, either thinking the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. Right. But for me, I push myself, huh? Why did I make that assumption about that? Yes. Person? Yes. Like have those yep. reflection moments with yourself. And I think for some people that's, that takes work. Um, it's no different than having a relationship in your marriage that takes work. And so, so does this, and you know, it, you have to be in the mindset to be okay and vulnerable. And I think some folks are a little fearful of that. Yeah. And then there are others where it's just flat out prejudice where they do see themselves as a hierarchy and that's a whole other conversation. But (laughs) once we get over the fear of it's okay to be wrong it's okay to give ourselves grace, but we got to hold ourselves accountable. We right. got to hold each other accountable. And how can we grow and learn together? Right. Well, yeah. And I think that, and I know personally for me, I think that's always something I'm trying to do and I'm not perfect. I mean, and I think that's the other thing too. And so you brought up white fragility and we said about the book and I'm going to say this, have you, have you read it? Yeah. I think it's a great book and it really looks at things in a lot of, of ways that are very jarring from for I think for a lot of white people and I think a lot of white people don't like the book because it's probably throwing things in their face that they don't like to face that made no sense but you know what I mean like it's just like right there and you don't want to deal with it and um one of the things that she talks about in the book is is racism and I think the one thing that really I took away from that is this is this it was no that most white people are racist that we have some form of racism now I th- I would hope that if people said sure you're not racist no I'm not like Ku Klux Klan racist we have done a very good job of saying that's what racism is right we've done such a good job that as long as you're not that you're not racist and and her point is that's not entirely true you know have we ever been walking down the street and crossed the street because a black man was walking towards you and you had a sense of fear or have you ever like not promoted somebody at work or things like that so it's like the racism in and a lot of it too is taught right um i'm not typically afraid of people but i would be lying if i said that i've never crossed the street because a black man came walking towards me now, as I'm growing older and realizing that's really stupid, why, why do I feel this way? And, I, and why did I do that? Well, because I've been taught to do that my whole life. And so I've got to decide to be the change, right? So next time. And then when I realized, I'm like, well, that's really stupid. Like this person coming at me had, had no weapon. He didn't even utter a word to me. That was we have to do that work. And so I think that's really interesting about, about racism. And I just wonder what your thoughts on that were, because I do think that racism is far wider than just like the guys burning crosses and, and yes, they're like an extreme of racism, but I think it just kind of exists everywhere. And I think that it's easy for white people like myself to just kind of like go through life and not realize that we are contributing to that system. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Um, the best way that I frame it to others 
when I've gotten into some heated debates um, with people who I love, you know, I have, I trust them, I love them and so forth, but I have called out that their actions were racist in nature. And the way I, you know, I'm able to explain that is when someone does a racist act or has a racist thought, that's not like tattooing on your forehead that you're a racist. Mm -hmm. Racism is an ideology, just like you were saying, it's something that is taught Mm -hmm. and we exhibit it through behaviors or Mm -hmm. through thoughts or through ideas. Um, But it's not necessarily like an identity of racists, non-racists. That's actually the whole point of um, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is we all do it. Like we all do it. It's how do we intentionally take actions or push ourselves on counter narratives that are deemed in the racism philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so really that's what it comes down to in terms of recognizing that because society, or we have lived in a society Mm -hmm. where race literally was taken into account in our constitution. Yeah. How do we push ourselves, you know, against that ideology so that way we can move away from it? And to your right. point, it takes, it's on us to do it. You know, right. we have to do it. Somebody's not going to do it for us. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, um, that other book you mentioned, it's on my list to read because, you know, and I, I really took to heart when my friend said about white people, we need to do the work and we need to stop like making it your responsibility to teach me when I can go get the answers myself. And so I would encourage anybody listening, um, do the work, get the books. I'm going to put list of them in any books you have that you think people need to be reading on this subject or any of the subjects we discuss. I would love to know because I think it's really important. And that's how I've kind of learned a lot. And I think I'm pretty progressive, but sometimes I surprise myself and realize that, oh, okay, I could be doing that too. So one of the things really popular in the news, and I think this really gets along the lines of equity uh, and diversity, um, especially, is President Biden said, I am going to pick a black woman for the Supreme Court. And a lot of people have issue with that comment, right? And I don't really understand why until I thought about a conversation I had And so I work at a place where our leadership has mostly been white men and it changes out every couple of years. And I was talking to somebody about who the next person would be. And I made a comment about, I said, he, and then I corrected myself. I said, or she, it'd be awesome to get a woman. And this person looked at me and said, if she's qualified. And I'm like, of course, if she's qualified, like I didn't mean just some woman off the street, like here, be in charge of all this. And I thought it was interesting because when I thought it was, when I was referencing by habit, a man, there was no, well, I hope he's qualified. But as soon as I said, how cool it'd be to get a woman in charge if she's qualified. And I'm seeing a lot of that with Biden's pick for Supreme Court. So what do you think of this whole uh, decision for him to pick a black woman for Supreme Court? Personally, I think it's awesome. But a lot of people in the country seem to disagree with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so having, you know, caught up on the hearings and things yes. like that, I mean, it is very clear that honor, honorable, uh, Katanji, um, Brown Jackson is qualified and oh, yes. definitely can do the job and lots to celebrate. Um, also recognizing, you know, she's in an interracial marriage and has, you know, biracial children and thinking about like just so much in terms of representation that she's, you know, um, potentially bringing to the court. So I agree. Definitely lots to celebrate. I do take issue with how President Biden worded it. And so, um, because honestly, it gets back to that question about affirmative action. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we think about like, we're only going to admit so many blank people from a quota perspective, then we get into question about, okay, well then it, are we only picking somebody because of their race? Even though in this particular case, yes, we could use some diversity on our Supreme Court, that'd be right. great. Um, but when we think about it and we frame it of, I'm only going to hire or nominate because someone is, you know, black or an inter identity here. Then, then you're walking a really fine line where it's just like, well, why is that okay? But then when I say, or I just so happen to only hire white men, that that's not mm -hmm. okay. How I believe Biden should have gone about it, President Biden um, should have gone about it is essentially saying, I'm going to diversify where I look. Mm -hmm. I'm going to diversify. I mean, granted, I think she went to Harvard. Yeah, she went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, I'm not going to pick a Harvard grad to be another Supreme Court justice. I'm going to look at an HBCU or, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. Then, okay, great. That's a great way to think about it. And I think that's what, how we really should be approaching these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I know me and my partner, um, we have this conversation all the time from a hiring perspective. So he works highly STEM, Navy, boring right. engineering stuff. Yes. And, <laughs> um, you know, but there's always this conversation of, I, you know, they've made great strides in terms of hiring more women, but getting applicants to apply who are also folks of color is something that just the organization is really struggling. And so we often have these conversations of, well, where are you recruiting? Okay, well, yeah, those are predominantly white areas. So that's why you're only gonna get mm -hmm. folks from that you know, regard. Or what are the pipelines in terms of you know, where there are high populations of people of color in terms of you know, doing scholarships or academic mm -hmm. programs after school, whatever the case might be. So that way there is an interest in the STEM field kind of thing. We may not see those results today when it comes to hiring, but maybe 20 years from now we mm -hmm. might. So really, how are we expanding in terms of where we're looking? So that way it doesn't happen to be the same person or same type of identities that are filling those roles all the time. Mm -hmm. And then we can diversify who is taking on these positions because we're diversifying where we're looking and where we're engaging and where we're building relationships. So you're saying, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, like all these things are great. All the reasons maybe that we're picking um, Justice Jackson, but the problem is he went like straight to Harvard versus expanding that pool of where we're looking from. So how, I think too, and the president shouldn't have an excuse. I don't think he has an excuse, 
But I think some on, on more my level, people don't know what they don't know. So how would you tell somebody to expand their pool if they've only ever known one pool? Um, I am ashamed to admit that I was far too old to know what um, HBCU meant, right? So if somebody doesn't know, and I think that's a huge problem. I think there's a lot of people who want to do more, but don't know how to do more. So how do you find a different pool if you don't know where or how to find a different pool? Like, I think that's, that's a, a great, huge challenge. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, again, I think it's also us in terms of like, I know you, Sherry, to mm -hmm. the point where I feel like we could push ourselves with this. But I think it was... Um, there was a leadership program that I went through and the way that he framed it, the um, facilitator framed it, I think is applicable no matter where you are in your career or what, you know, um, where you are in life kind of thing. And the way he framed it was, who are you having coffee with? Okay, mm -hmm. that's a great start. Who are you accepting coffee with or reaching out to have coffee with? Mm -hmm. And is that diverse? And if not, then really it's on you in terms of how am I having conversations with people that may not look like me, that may not have the same experience as me, or um, may think differently than me. Mm -hmm. I know for me, it's not necessarily like the looks of identity or who I love identity perspective, but like pushing myself in terms of ideologies and having those conversations that can be done in a respectful mm -hmm. way so that way I can kind of center myself in terms of this is my belief system and, you know, I've been able to weigh different alternatives, but it really comes down to in terms of looking at your organization, are there opportunities to engage with folks outside of your unit that you normally wouldn't have, I don't know, it could be a potluck, it could be, you right. know, some form of like um, professional development opportunity. Yeah. How are you experiencing um, reaching out and engaging with people? Because it's really going to start, and we talked about this earlier, of if we're uncomfortable of having conversations about doing the work about race or gender, whatever the case might be, well, it's going to be really hard if you're not, if you don't even know anyone right. to like build or start having those relationships, because that's where you're really going to see and learn. And it's not just by asking a question, it's just about engaging. Right. Um, and so I think it's really that. And so that's something that I push myself. Who am I having coffee with? Okay, that's great. And who am I reaching out to have coffee with? Or who am I accepting to have coffee with? And who am I not? Who am I excluding? And so really pushing myself in terms of making that who I'm excluding not be an exclusion anymore because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm diversifying where I'm going. Mm -hmm. So it's like all of these things lead into other things that are all part of DE&I. And you mentioned earlier about representation. And I don't know about you, but I absolutely love the halftime show of the Super Bowl this year. I didn't watch the amazing. Super Bowl. It was amazing. I, didn't watch it. I watched it the next day and watched it on YouTube because like I could care less about who Tom Brady again. Oh, I'm retiring. I'm not whatever. Um, I'm so over him. Anyways, uh, but the Super Bowl was awesome. Uh, I that was like like they're talking to us, right? They're talking to our generation. Our generation. For sure. Yeah. And 
Um, I loved a couple of things about it. One, there was some great representation um, with hip hop and culture. It was very cool. Um, I super love seeing certain people saying, that's not music, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, what, what do you think the value of having all those amazing hip hop artists was to have them on center stage at the Super Bowl? Probably one of the most watched televised events every year. Uh, it was amazing. Um, so I grew up listening to all of that R&B, rap, all of it. Um, I went to high school in Baltimore. Um, I don't know, it's a unknown fact, but Tupac Shakur actually went to the high school that I went to. What? Um, yeah, yeah, he's from Baltimore awesome. and then moved to California. And I don't so, think I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. when they did his like little shout out, I cried, you know? Aww. So, you know, it, and I think it was really moving. and ironically, it was my spouse, I, who's white male, um, who was telling our children, you know, um, why the Super Bowl meant so much. Mm -hmm. And not just because, yes, they're speaking to our generation from an age perspective, <laughs> but when we were listening to that music or hiding and pretending that we were listening to other music because we were listening to the music we weren't supposed to be listening to for some folks, um, if you had told us back then that Dr. Dre or Snoop or, I mean, Mary J. Blige, yes, because I feel like she was a crossover and she mm -hmm. could, you know, probably, yeah. you know, do it. But if you had told us back then that hard rap was going to be played at the halftime Super Bowl, we would have laughed in your face because right. it wasn't respected by folks that didn't look like us mm -hmm. or, you know, what we call the white folks who are allowed to come to the cookout, <laughs> um, you know, because they, <laughs> they understand and appreciate this music, not from a capitalistic perspective, because they, they, they recognize the art behind it. Mm -hmm. That was unheard of because it was a music genre that was looked down upon, not because of how it sounded or whatnot, it literally came down to because of who was making the music mm -hmm. and then let alone like people didn't understand the lyrics and the way, and like, don't get me wrong. There are some rap songs that are, you know, we could have debates and questions sure. about like gender norms, like what we were talking yeah. about earlier right. or, you know, violence, whatever the case might be. But in a lot of ways, it was overlooked in terms of what that meant from a sociology mm -hmm. perspective of these were lived experiences. Why are right. we saying that that's not a value compared to like what some rock songs, you know, if we're going to talk about like hard, you know, ACDC, all that other stuff. And we're just yep. like, okay, but that content's okay. Right. Um, you know, then let's, where's the equity in that? So right. I think that that was what was meaningful to me was allowing my kids to see something be upheld as American and as, you know, as American as apple pie, when for so many years, it was looked down upon right. by mainstream. I thought, I thought it was super cool. I even had some people say, oh, they've had black artists on the Super Bowl before. And Bruno Mars was on a couple of years ago. I'm like, okay, sure. I, I'm, I, but this was like, like you said, these were some serious hip hop artists who, who were very like, yeah, Bruno Mars, everybody like he, he sings, 
happy, lovey music and taking grenades for people and things like that. And, and all of that is fine and good, but there, I just, I was like, yeah, it's, to me, it just wasn't the same thing. And I think for, for these hip hop artists to be able to take that stage, I think it was awesome. Um, I didn't like people making fun of 50 Cent because he put on some weight. Um, that spoke to me personally. <laughs> Cause I'm like, Dude, that's, that's also I put on a thing some, of I put on some weight too, man. <laughs> I mean, but that's also the thing about DE&I, you know, right. like, why are we, why is that a, talk, a talkable thing? So I, again, before we started recording, I told you how I get all sorts of interesting things on my Facebook and Instagram. And I follow a lot of uh, sign language people because, um, interpreters and such, because um, we had a deaf woman work in my office for a while. And so I was trying to learn some sign language so I could actually have some sort of communication with her. And now they're all over my feet and it's very fascinating. And one of the things they talked about was um, how they kind of got snubbed at the Super Bowl. And it was interesting because if you ever uh, look like sign language performers, if you go on YouTube and stuff, so uh, I've seen them for like Eminem and for like other big rock groups. I think I just saw one for... Um, like Cardi B the other day that they have these people and how for the deaf community, it's a huge deal. And the way they explained it was, we know the words to the song. Like I know the words to songs, but I want to see them sing it, right? These and sign language interpreters kind of do the same thing. They perform the songs for the deaf community. And I just thought it was super interesting that, that they didn't get like a bigger square in the corner to do their thing because they were hired there to do the thing and and it's like kind of getting back to some of the things you said earlier it's cool that they hired them but what good does it do if nobody actually sees it so like I don't know I don't know what your thoughts are on that but I just thought it was really interesting I'm like okay so you hired them to say you did it and to feel good about it but then nobody got to see it and I don't know if you've have you ever watched a sign language performer like perform it's yes. super and, fascinating. Yeah, it's beautiful and artistic in yes. a lot of ways too. Um, and I'll have to admit my blind spot. I was unfamiliar with this topic until you reached out and you know brought it to my attention. So I had to do some digging before today to like kind of get well versed on it. And I as I think back to the Super Bowl, I remember seeing sign language ASL interpreters on um, for the national anthem, yep. mm -hmm. but did not see them for the halftime show. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking through um, media sites to catch up on it, I saw all of these announcements about how these two particular artists were yep. hired to do it. There was so much excitement from, you know, the deaf and hard of hearing community um, to support this. And so it was like one of these things, and this was my aha moment in terms of, it was a PR stunt. And mm -hmm. essentially it was, how can we get more people to watch this? Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to, you know, announce that we're going to hire and be a part. NFL is going to be part of this DEI bandwagon, and we're going to hire these um, these rap, you know, um, interpreters, and then we're going to stuff them in a corner and then not spotlight them. Mm -hmm. And that's that's essentially commodifying diversity, where mm -hmm. you 
are emphasizing and showcasing yourself as, oh, look at us, we're doing, we're so inclusive. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we saw what ended up happening. And that's really unfortunate. And I hope that more folks, and also like, I didn't even know that this had happened. So why wasn't there more conversation from mainstream in terms of how significant this was Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the NFL even hiring them? I'd be curious to know, like, what did the artists think? Like, what did Mary J. Blige, Eminem, are there opportunities to kind of use their platform to speak out against Mm -hmm. how it should be more inclusive in terms of where they're performing? Um, Because there was a band on the stage. So why was that okay? But, you know, um, so yeah, yeah, that's kind of my my two cents on that. Yeah, and it's interesting because when they're actually at concerts performing, usually they have their own kind of, platform and I'll tell you this from somebody who worked in the media it is not that hard to put that little box in the corner where you could have literally shown them the whole time that's like, what they did for the national anthem yeah it's it's not a hard it's like literally one of the easiest it's like literally I, I shit you not a push of a button yeah and it's just really sad that it didn't happen and just I think a big missed opportunity for the NFL like absolutely huge missed opportunity um Another big kind of topic, and this one, I could probably go off on this one um, because this one on a personal level offends me because I have uh, lots of friends in this community with the don't say gay uh, bill in Florida. And I feel like they're, they're trying to use children as kind of like the shield Mm-hmm. Right. Because and, and I actually even talked about using children as a shield in another episode with uh, with my friend Tim. But I feel like they're using children as a shield to to pass their agenda. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're saying, well, you can't you, they're literally saying you can't talk about about being gay. In your curriculum. Right. Is that, that's pretty much the, the, the basics of it. Right. Yep. And sexuality. And it really comes down to counseling. So if there's somebody who is facing depression or questions about their identity, if sexuality or gender or anything like that from a counseling, the school cannot discuss it. Or the parents have to be intervened or like the parents have to be brought on, which may or may not be for the best interest of the child. Uh, Yeah, because most people don't come out to their parents for very unfortunately for horrible reasons. I mean, good reasons for the person who's who's making that decision, but it's usually because because they don't feel safe doing it or having the safe space. <laughs> what do you, what do you think? That, I mean, I feel like this just sets us back. Like here we are. We're finally in a world where where um, LGBTQ plus can marry, they can adopt, they can do all these things, and now it's like we're literally going back to the 1950s. And we're like, not even going to say the word. What are your thoughts on this? And I mean, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah. Um, this one was hard. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's just like, is there a Hail Mary <laughs> that can come and intervene to yeah. like ma- prevent this from going into law? Because ultimately what it's going to come down to is, is it's going to cause more harm yeah. um, than it is of any good. But 
you know, those that are pushing the agenda for this bill are saying, well, no, it's to prevent harm from children learning about sex and gender in non-Christian ways, super, you know, at an inappropriate age, which we all know is bullshit. So their kids are, um, they're attuned. They're, you know, um, they're aware, they ask questions. And so, as soon as we get into an environment, you know, I know for my kids, as soon as they ask a question and if the response is, well, that's not something we talk about, or, you know, you're not appropriate, or that's not an age appropriate question. Mm-hmm. What is that going to do? That's going to spark their, you know, their inquiry a little bit further. And so yeah. where are they going to go to get that information? Well, right. they're going to go into places that you may or may not want your child going. So yep. like, you know, or underground or whatever the case might be. And so that, I think that, but most importantly, it really places this emphasis of those, you know, whether or not they're in their preteens or their teenagers, especially once we're getting into the high school, you know, right. age, um, that if we're not supposed to talk about these things, is there something wrong with me? Right. Because I know for a fact, then I'm pretty sure that heterosexual, you know, relationships are still going to be openly discussed sure. in these systems. And if that is normalized as okay, but anything else isn't, then that's right. going to be a problem. Um, but as I was like really reflecting on like when the bill was moving through, and I really question in terms of this argument, in terms of, well, we want it to be the parents' rights. And that's really what this is coming down to. And this is where many of the laws actually that um, the GOP party, I'll just flat out say it. um, I identify as an independent. So, you know, I'll give shame to any political party, don't worry. (laughs) Um, But in this particular case, the GOP is pushing this agenda of states' rights and parents' rights. So that's like the CRT. Mm-hmm. That's why we're seeing, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's parents' rights. Um, when we're getting into the conversation of like Roe versus, versus Wade and a couple others, COVID masks, whether, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the case might be, those are state rights arguments. So when we're talking about, well, it is Florida's right to do this bill because we want parents to be able to control when they have the conversation about sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, when you do the Pledge of Allegiance, is the word God still included? Mm-hmm. Oh, it is? So you mean to tell me that religion is something that can be introduced and talked about openly or normalized when maybe not all families identify as being Christian? Mm-hmm. But that's okay. Yeah. And so that's really what I push on. If we're going to make that excuse, because that's what I'll call it, Mm -hmm. we're going to use it as an excuse in terms of us not talking about sexuality and something that is not necessarily within the Christian umbrella, but on the vice versa, it is okay to talk about Christian values and specifically Christianity I'm going to have a hard time understanding, like help me understand. That's typically when I have, you know, when I've come to terms where it's just like, I don't know why that's wrong, but it's wrong. So help me understand where you're coming from. That's where I really push back. And that's what, where I call bullshit on this bill because the, the logic just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I just, yeah. And I just, I have um, a lot of friends who are, who are part of this community and it's just, 
I feel like it's like you said, it's just saying that they're wrong and it's just teaching kids who, you know, who may be realizing that they are part of this community that is just teaching them that they're wrong. And I also can't help but think that the people pushing this, it's just like, it's just like um, when we, when we sent the, the gay kids to the camps and the conversion camps, it's almost like we're going back to that. And I can't help but think of how, if, you know, first of all, I'm sorry, but your sexuality, I, I it's not a choice. Because if it were a choice, I could just say, you know what? I'm going to be gay today. And, and that's not how it works. And I can't help but think that and I, I, I'm, I'm not gay, so I'm not trying to speak for the gay community, but I can't help but think that if you are a young person who is going through that part of your life, determined, trying to figure out what your sexuality is, I mean, just to have openly gay teachers and just to have that be okay and part of the norm, how impactful that would be to somebody. And I feel like we're taking that away. And what, and I'm very, I'm going to be very curious to see what happens to those openly gay teachers, because I know there's lots of them, to see how that's going to impact them and the way that they educate children and the way that they, they interact with the children. I think, I think it's lots, I, I just think it's setting us back so far. And I think that, yeah, if, you know, yeah, parents do get to have these conversations with their children, but I think unfortunately we don't always get to pick when. And I think that the better thing to do would be instead of saying, let's not say it, let's think of how we can incorporate um, appropriate conversations for the age, right? And I think that's fair. Is that fair to say like, so yes, I probably wouldn't talk to a kindergartner about sexuality the same way I would like 10 year old the same way I would like a 16 year old, the same way I would an adult. So why are we not just having a more, why are we not including age appropriate content talking about sexuality? Because we all have it. It's not like, I mean, it's there for everybody. We all have it. So I just, I don't understand. I'm with you. Like, help me understand why we're not being more progressive rather than setting ourselves back. It's really annoying. I mean, something else to add to, because I'm pretty sure it's gender and sexuality. They're merging the two, even though they're distinct. Oh. But um, another thing that could be overlooked, and I know that these are conversations that I have with my kids, and we're in a very, I would say, progressive county. So I know that they're having them in school. But like the question came up, boys wear blue and girls wear pink essentially under this law, they can't necessarily have this conversation about, well, well, why is that? You know, why can't boys wear pink? And, you know, if we're going to look at it from a dichotomy perspective, but like even getting to those types of nuances or pronouns or, you know, things of that nature, we we're missing out on opportunities mm -hmm. for when kids are really inquiring about how the world works, right. if we're shielding them from realistically how the world works, that can be a dangerous problem down the road. And yeah. so I think there's a lot of problematic perspectives in terms of how this, this law, because has it even been signed? I don't even, I don't think so. Last I checked, it was still making its way through, but I haven't seen it's been signed yeah. yet. 
So, I mean, that, that it's going to be really harmful. Yeah. It, you know, comes to pass. I agree. But one thing I do love, I love that anytime something, and I'm going to say this, something idiotic like this happens and they start banning books and they start doing things. I love just how much interest it, it, it brings. Right. Um, so even though, you know, Florida might get away with this, I, it is my hope that, that, uh, common sense will prevail in some way. And I'm going to be very interested to see how this comes out. There was, um, yeah, I'm not even going to get down that topic because we'll be here for hours, but, but yes, um, I'm going to say gay all day. I mean, gay, 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 gay. And I, and I just, like I said, this one's really personal to me. I have so many really close people to me who fall into this community and how this is just stupid. Um, there I said it and I don't care what political party you are. Um, <laughs> I could go on. I could get on a soapbox about this stuff. And a lot of it just, it irritates me. And I think that if you're irritated by this stuff, if you're irritated by the way justice Brown is getting treated, if you're irritated by the comments made about the Super Bowl, if you're irritated by, by don't say gay, then you're probably on the right side of history. <laughs> Right. And, and find, find way, no, but find ways, find ways that you can fight against it. Right. Find ways that you can still support those communities doing those things. Um, so the next one I want to bring up, and I think we could get into it um, a little bit. And I think it's really important is, is cancel culture. And I, I have uh, mixed feelings about this. I a hundred percent believe. And so for me, cancel culture is somebody makes a statement that is not politically correct. Somebody does something that's not right and we just cancel them out. Um, some people I believe have done something severe enough where maybe that's warranted or perhaps they've done it like several times and that's warranted. I think people should be accountable for saying something wrong. But I also feel like cancel culture has also got in us away from making amends for what we've done wrong. So, I mean, I am not a perfect person. I have made, looking back, I've probably made horrible jokes that I didn't necessarily mean to come out the way they did, or I didn't think, or I did not realize that they were as harmful as they were. I would be devastated if I was just canceled for that and I didn't get the opportunity to apologize, correct myself or whatever. So is, what, is cancel culture really a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What are your thoughts on that? Um, so cancer cult, I would say that cancel culture is definitely something that is happening today. And I'm with you, Sherry, where I think that there are, a, and I don't even like the, I think it's a buzzword and it's, it is, it's a buzzword that means it means well, but it's being used and exploited in ways of excluding others mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. So I agree that there are, there's definitely levels of accountability that we are all expected to adhere to. And like you, if I, and I am not perfect, I have messed up and I have, you know, I tout time and time again, that if I say or do something that is harmful or inappropriate or ignorant, 
I will only learn is if you tell me and, mm-hmm. you know, hold me accountable in terms of how I need to correct my actions or right. my impact, no matter my intent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's no different when we talk about it, you know, in the terms of what we're talking about cancel culture. And then there are other times where it's just like, that was illegal. So you need to go to jail. Right. You know, when we talk about cancel culture from like sexual assault and harassment right. and things of that nature, where, yeah, you, yeah, your cancel culture is literally going into a prison. Um, but then there are, there are, oper- there, there are campaign smears, as I would like to really yes. say, or, you know, um, really trying to discredit someone because of a right. mistake that they made and not presenting an opportunity to learn and grow. And that's right. where there are times where the individual that may make statements, it's clear that that person doesn't want to learn. And it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to go right. ahead and, you know, move on from you right. and we're going to, you know, take our money elsewhere, whatever the case might be. And sure. then there are others where that opportunity isn't given. Yeah. And that's where I would push back a little bit to say, are we being equitable in terms of who we're canceling and who we're not canceling? Right. Um, are we, would we hold ourselves to the same standard? Um, and I think that that is where we as a society, if we're going to maintain this concept of cancel culture, we need to do it in a way mm-hmm. that is fair and just, and not just because we don't like someone. Right. I just think that all this work that we're doing, that you're doing is essentially pointless if every time somebody makes a mistake, we're just going to write them off and not give them the opportunity to learn and grow. So I guess the whole point of me bringing this up is I just really want people to think about, you know, when somebody makes a mistake, it's okay to be mad. Like the people just be really mindful of who they're canceling and why. And like you said, I love how you put it. Are we giving them that, that equity, that opportunity to grow and learn. And if they still don't grow and learn, then, then yeah, I think you start to get to cancel things out, I guess. Um, Real quick though, I'll also add too that this concept of cancel culture has also been weaponized by folks that don't like to be held accountable. So I think it's also really important to recognize that accountability doesn't mean, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that accountability is cancel culture. Accountability is accountability. Right. And so just because you're being held accountable for said actions or words doesn't mean that we're canceling you. We're giving you an opportunity to grow. Now we may cancel you based upon how you respond to that. That's but, fair. Um, so also being mindful that, you know, for some folks that are using cancel culture as a weapon to say, well, they're just canceling me because they don't like what I had to say. Right. Where it's just like, no, because what you had to say was racist or sexist or, you know, homophobic. Yeah. Um, you just don't like to be held accountable. No. And, and that's a really great point. And I hope that that what we've done with these discussions and, and talking about any of these things, I mean, we're, we're just, we're spending like an hour talking about this. We could spend hours talking about each one Um, but as I said to you before I started recording a big part of why I want to have this conversation with you and touch on these things. I am by no way saying that we've cracked all the eggs that need to be cracked here. We have just scratching the surface, but my point for having this conversation with you is one, because we're friends Two, I, I come from a small town 
where I did not really know any people of color. Everybody looked like me, talked like me, sounded like me. Until I was in high school, um, there was two young black women who went to my high school. That was it. Until I got to college is really when I really was exposed to diversity. And the reason for having this conversation is, as we were talking before, not everybody can have this conversation because not everybody has these people in their lives. And the one person of diversity that they might have in their lives um, may not be that close that they're even comfortable about saying, hey, please tell me what it's like about being disabled or black or, or gay. Um, so it's, those are very deep personal conversations. So one of my hopes for this is just exposing some people who might not have those opportunities to have those conversations. Um, but I wanted to ask kind of finally for those people who don't have a lot of diversity in their lives, how can a person promote diversity, equity, and inclusion as part of their everyday life? Yeah. Um, and thanks again for having me. I mean, it was great just to catch up with you because like you said, we are friends. So well, um, well, I'll see you at a football game soon. I see season yeah. tickets are on sale again. So yeah. it's, it's almost that time of year. It is. Um, but yeah, to be honest, when it comes to how do we do this day in, day out, I know for me is... I, I would say one of the most tangible things is being empathetic, thinking, you know, my experience is not the only experience. And so how can I learn more about, you know, um, topics or, you know, laws that are coming through that I may not necessarily understand. And so how do I find ways to seek understanding? And we talked about some, a lot of what we do on a day-to-day, -day, we've talked about, you know, earlier today in terms of like, where am I getting my, my resources? Um, so it, whether it's on social media or actual media sites and sources, like how am I getting different perspectives so that way I can critically come to a decision on my own instead of having someone make it for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's one way. Um, diversifying, um, you know, where we are engaging in our conversations. Again, that could be social media. Um, I know now we live in a very, you know, um, diverse area, you know, in the, um, in this region, but I would say, um, really coming down to, again, how, who am I having coffee with? Who am I, you know, hanging or inviting to happy hours, whatever the case might be in that regard but really finding ways to engage with others um, is definitely another one. But then another one for me that I have found really helpful over the years is journaling and reflection in terms of, huh, I don't know why I felt that way when, you know, X, Y, and Z um, was shared in a, a meeting and I was really angry and hot and, you know, or I was really, um, I made a lot of assumptions about that person who just so happens mm -hmm. to be a woman of color in a leadership position or was a white male and, you know, came across um, leading a presentation a certain mm -hmm. way. And so really pushing myself to check my assumptions, I think is going to be super helpful. 
And then lastly, like read a book. Like I need people to read damn books again. And (laughs) whether it is reading books of, you know, authors that you normally wouldn't have read, um, whether it is different, you know, authors from different religions or socioeconomic backgrounds or race, gender, you know, sexuality, whatever the case might be, like read a book, fiction, nonfiction, autobiographical, biographical, I don't care. Just like get exposure in terms of different perspectives, different engaging, especially if you're unsure or unfamiliar to have a conversation with someone. Um, There is nothing a book won't teach you. So, um, but you can do in the safety of your own home and with your own vulnerability, you don't have to just put it out on display if you're not there in your journey yet. Uh, I love what you said about journaling and like going back and looking at your perspectives. And I was like, oh my God, it's like every day when I go on Facebook and it shows me my memories and I go back 12 years, I'm like, oh, this is so cringy. Yeah. Like, and I just a lot where I was like, oh shit, I said that. Yeah, me too. Me too. And some of it out. Yeah. It's just like, oh, and I mean, it's, it's just, yeah. Journaling's a good one because you'll write down some stuff and then go look at it and you'll, thankfully I have grown because a lot of times I'm like, delete, delete. delete. Yep. <laughs> Don't ever, ever want to see that again. Any, any last thoughts? Yeah. Um, Yeah, we did talk about a lot. Um, I would say the last thought that I would say is there is no end post for making something diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Um, We can set and measure, you know, like I want to be X, you know, as an organization, you know, five years from now, and we're going to find ways to measure that. Like we want to have such percentage of diversity within a timeframe. Those are great goals, but there is no like opportunity where it's just like, great, we've done our work, we're done. We don't need to work anymore on this. Like it is a constant work in process. Um, And so no different than a relationship. Um, We're essentially building relationships as a community when when we're talking about DNI work. So um, I really want to emphasize that, um, that's, that's what makes this work hard, but it is totally rewarding in the end in terms of, I just think about how much more we could solve and mm-hmm. what new science we could discover if we have these opportunities to create communities where we're bringing new minds and concepts and ideas that were often excluded for so many years, right. what new change will come from that and in good ways. Um, so I just wanna close in on that, that we have a lot of work ahead of us because the work will never be done. I hope you have enjoyed this episode in the sense that it was meaningful, beneficial to you in some way, gave you some perspective, some things to think about, please go to my show notes. Uh, Some of the things we talked about, I've put links and resources as I always do, so that way you can continue your journey, especially with this topic of diversity, equity, inclusion. I hope that you all go forth and have um, an amazing day, an amazing week, an amazing month until I talk to you all next time. And I hope you 
go out for that cup of coffee and think about who it is that you're having coffee with. So until next time, friends, be kind, love one another, do good in the world, 